Hello, hello, hello! Welcome to your extra morning news show. My name is Philip DeFranco, and today we're going to be talking about Syria. Now, you may remember that at the end of 2018, President Trump said that the United States had defeated ISIS in Syria and would start pulling troops out soon. We've been fighting for a long time in Syria. I've been president for almost two years, and we've really stepped it up. And we have won against ISIS. We've beaten them, and we've beaten them badly. We've taken back the land. And now it's time for our troops to come back home. And this announcement came as a shock to many, including Trump advisors and U.S. allies. And this was because there were worries that leaving Syria right now could help the terror group make a comeback or leave a power vacuum that countries like Iran and Russia could potentially fill. And so we saw lawmakers from both sides of the aisle criticizing the move. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis resigned, and people were especially worried about what would happen to the U.S.'s Kurdish allies. Well, ever since his announcement back in December, President Trump seems to have backtracked on his decision. After months of pressure from lawmakers, European allies, and defense officials, he has agreed to keep 400 U.S. troops in Syria. And when asked why he was reversing course, this is what he said at a press briefing in the Oval Office on February 22nd. I'm not reversing course. Uh, I have done something that nobody else has been able to do. In another short period of time, like hours, you'll be hearing hours and days, you'll be hearing about the caliphate. It's 100% defeated. Nobody's been able to say that. That doesn't mean there aren't some very bad people walking around and strapping on bombs and all of these things, but we've done a job that nobody else has been able to do. And when talking about Syria in the now and the people affected over the last eight years, I think it's kind of important to take a quick look back. Right, since 2011, the country has been plagued by a civil war, and since the start of this conflict, countless armed groups and political movements have surfaced in an attempt to take power. And some describe the situation as a five-way proxy war, primarily between the United States, Russia, Iran, Turkey, and Saudi Arabia. But in recent years, the division of power has become far more complex. So complex, in fact, that even the people living in it had trouble keeping up. Fighting in Syria began on March 15th, 2011, when protests broke out in cities like Damascus, Aleppo, and Dara. Meaning that tomorrow, March 15th, 2019, will actually mark the eighth anniversary of this conflict. And in a nutshell, on that day, back in 2011, organizers called on Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad to introduce democratic reforms and release political prisoners. But instead, he responded with violence. And just a quick warning, the footage you're going to see is graphic. Some of the protesters then decided to join forces with military defectors and formed the Free Syrian Army, whose goal was to overthrow the government. By 2012, what began as a peaceful protest was pushed to the brink of a full-blown civil war. Fighting had spread across the country, leaving 16,000 people dead, and the International Committee of the Red Cross had no choice but to declare the conflict a civil war. And the war may have started as an uprising against President al-Assad, but as time went on, it turned into a free-for-all. But now, with President Trump's announcement, it seems like we may, hopefully, be approaching the tail end of this massive conflict-turned-civil war that has taken the lives of over half a million people, displaced nearly 13 million, and just devastated this entire country. Now, in order to try to best understand what has been happening and how the war has affected people on the ground, we thought about covering this topic from a historical and political standpoint, but even then, it's still hard to gauge the scope of it all and to really understand the impact of something of this magnitude. Sure, we can speak as a third party, but why do that if we have the opportunity to go straight to the source? And so with all of this in mind, we had Maria Socian from the team go out to speak with a family who has been severely impacted by the Syrian war, a family that has had to pick up the pieces of their lives and start all over again here in the United States. And with the help of the UN High Commissioner for Refugees and the International Rescue Committee, they were able to secure the necessary paperwork and resettle in California. Maria connected with them through a nonprofit organization called Mary's List that helps provide goods and services for resettling refugees. And so with that said, let's just jump into it. Meet the Trod family. In 2012, parents Jamal and Abir made the difficult decision to leave their home in Damascus for the safety and well-being of their kids, Nasser, Hamza, Layla, and Zain. 
Their future was uncertain. The process of finding safety and eventually securing status as refugees was tricky and complicated, and their journey to the United States was not an easy one. I mean, the first days of was so difficult. So, so he, he at night time he would just go walk, he just go walk around just to you know kind of know what's the place look like, what's the neighborhood, how it just I mean just kind of looks. So at the day before we took the 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 flight, we took it. We looked at it. I was like, "It's LA. It's not Texas." And we thought they were mistaken. I was like, "No, it's LA." Over 5.6 million people have fled Syria since 2011, escaping bombs and bullets, and eventually seeking refuge in neighboring countries like Lebanon, Turkey, and Egypt. According to a UNHCR report, Turkey hosts the largest number of registered Syrian refugees, currently at 3.6 million. Another 6.6 million have been displaced internally, meaning they've been forced to leave their homes but remain within their country's borders. The U.S. policy on accepting refugees has shifted since 2011. Generally speaking, the U.S. has resettled more refugees than any other country, about 3 million since 1980. Historically, during years when more people around the globe have been displaced by conflict, violence, or persecution in their home countries, the number of refugees taken in by the U.S. has increased. But according to a Pew Research Center analysis and U.S. State Department data, in the last few years, that number hasn't consistently grown to accommodate rising numbers in the global refugee population, a number that's nearly doubled since 2013. Recent numbers show that the U.S. admitted 22,491 refugees in the last fiscal year, one of the lowest amounts on record. This was less than half the number of refugees admitted in 2017, and about a quarter of the number of people admitted in 2016 under the Obama administration. According to State Department records going back to 1975, the only year that the U.S. admitted fewer refugees was 1977. A State Department spokesperson said the reduced number of admissions was consistent with operational capacity to implement new screening and vetting procedures following Executive Order 13780, titled Protecting the Nation from Foreign Terrorist Entry into the United States. This executive order, which is also the second iteration of the president's travel ban, was issued by President Donald Trump in March 2017. It kept people from Iran, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, Yemen, and Syria from entering the U.S. for 90 days unless they could prove a bona fide relationship with any person or entity in the United States. Let's look at the numbers when it comes to Syria specifically since the start of the war in 2011. Between October 1st, 2011 and December 31st, 2016, 18,007 Syrian refugees were resettled in the United States, with a major increase in 2016. According to State Department figures, near the end of Barack Obama's presidency, the U.S. resettled 15,479 Syrian refugees. In 2017, that number dropped to just 3,024 as a result of the travel ban. And it kept dropping, so much so that only 62 Syrian refugees were resettled in the U.S. in the fiscal year that ended on September 30. As it turns out, the Trod family were six of the 15,479 who were admitted in 2016. We left Syria in 2012, we left Egypt in 2016, and now... 2016 would become to the U.S. The Trog family applied for resettlement from Egypt, where they fled following the wave of violence and terror. There, they went through a rigorous vetting process and waited on their documents for about four years. 
It can take two or more years for U.S. officials to process applications for resettlement. Each applicant undergoes medical exams, a security check, and an in-person interview with immigration officers at the Department of Homeland Security. And candidates must prove they meet the legal definition of a refugee, which includes having a well-founded fear of persecution based on race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or membership in a particular social group. According to Jamal, the situation in Syria escalated rather quickly. Before the protests, life in Damascus was good. They were happy. But within weeks, the violence and unrest at the southern border began to spread. And soon enough, it made its way to their own backyard. Before everything happened, was everything really good, very good? So at the beginning, we, was, we, we used to hear news happening in a different city, and it was like, okay, it's kind of far. You weren't aware of it enough, but like after that, it's in our neighborhood, and when my neighbor was damage on us. I asked Jamal if he recalls a single moment where he knew he and his family were no longer safe. A moment where he knew he had to leave to guarantee their survival. I asked Abir the same question. Her story was one of the more difficult moments of the interview for everyone in the room. So she's like, I don't like to remember or talk about it, but she's going to just share it. I was sitting with my neighbor at, at my home. The last floor is, was open. There's no roof. It was a yeah. kind of, uh, that's there where they sit there hang out. And she was sitting there with her friend, having fun, drinking tea, you know. And all of a sudden they hear big, a huge sound, it was explosion. Under the house, yeah. like under the building. And all of a sudden, you know, where the rocks get thrown on them. And one of the rocks went on her head and she passed away right away. She passed out, she just died right away in her hand. And she was bleeding in her hand, this was just, I mean, you know, she was because her friend was pregnant at that time and she passed away on her hands and she was like, they were best friends for like 10 years or more. Every time at that house, she go to sleep, she remember that moment and she couldn't forget. And so we have to to get her out of that because it affects her, you know, her affecting us, of course. I mean, but I don't I don't forget me seeing her kids going to her and see that moment was like one of the worst thing I ever seen. As it turns out, Abir and her friend weren't alone on that roof. 10-year-old Layla was there too. I remember the bomb that happened. I remember everything. She was pregnant and she died. Have you ever had to tell anyone that story? Since the start of the war, there have been hundreds of explosions and bombings throughout Syria, similar to the one that Abir and Layla experienced. Thankfully, they were part of the few who were lucky enough to have survived. 
The origins and identities of the attackers are very often unclear, but many blame the Assad regime for creating a culture of violence. And in response, the Syrian government blames the attacks on terrorists. One thing known for certain is that dozens of civilians are wounded or killed every time. In 2012, when Abir was still living in Syria, the civilian death count was at 9,000. Over time, that number became lost in the fog of war. And today, according to a report by the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, the death toll has risen to over 560,000. Making it out of Syria alive is one thing. Picking up the pieces of your life and having to start all over again is another. In Syria, Jamal was a nationally recognized kickboxing trainer. As an official trainer for the Syrian national team, he traveled the world representing his country. He owned a gym in Damascus, trained athletes, champions, and even his own kids, who've made their father very proud by winning quite a few championships themselves. But moving to the U.S. meant leaving all of that behind. The fame, recognition, championship belts, gold medals, they're all distant memories. But the passion and ambition to rebuild lives on. <laughs> so that's the most thing actually impact him in a way because he was like such a big deal. Like almost half Syria knows him. After a while, he got used to it. I mean, not used to it, but it was kind of easier. So I think every day you learn something new, and whenever you learn something new, you just you get closer to your success. He wanna, he was like saying, I wanna build my own gym and do my championships. And I make champs. That's great. That's my life. I was curious about whether or not Hamza, Layla, and Zayn remember what life was like back in Syria, considering how young they were when they left. I remember my school when I was in elementary school. My graduation, my elementary school graduation, remember some friends, my home, and the gym we were practicing with my dad. Yeah, I remember our cat. We had a little cat. I remember my home, that, that my home, and I remember like my friends and my family, all my family. Yeah, it's mm. really hard. But I don't really remember Syria, I remember Egypt more. Because I lived there for years. I grew up there. My school, my friends, like everything was, was there. So it was hard to leave Egypt and come here. More often than not, war robs children of their childhood. They spend years going from one refugee camp to another in search of aid, shelter, and stability. In some of the most extreme cases, kids have no choice but to stop going to school and work instead and go on to become the breadwinners of their families. Because of this, once families permanently resettle, education becomes a top priority. And a lot of the responsibilities fall on the eldest child, who's not only responsible for his own studies, but also needs to keep up with everyone else's. A lot of pressure, a lot of, a lot, like I have to keep up with everything, especially me, I'm the oldest, so you know, to keep up for the family of everything, to take care of uh, their schools, their homeworks, translation, doctors, everything. I mean, back then, I didn't have to worry about all that. We have our own gym, our own house, our own car. I didn't have to worry if I have to work and all that. Everything was already provided to me. 
It's kind of privilege. I asked Nasser if he plans to help his dad open a gym here too. Of course, I will support him, but also I will finish my studies at college too. I mean, I've been training with my dad since I was like eight years old. So we did a lot of championships. I was Syrian champion. I did a championship in Asia, Africa. I did one here in Texas in the U.S. was a Muay Thai. We did it, so... Yeah, I mean, so they call him to for us to, to be sponsored to be fight, but then he was like, it's not right now, they're still young. I was introduced to Nasser by Mary Whitehill, the founder of Mary's List, a nonprofit organization working with families resettling as refugees in America. Since July 2016, Mary's List has served over 320 families from Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, and Syria, including Nasser's. The role of resettling teenagers is incredible when you really get to know a lot of families and you see the really special roles that these kids are playing. Um, many times, teenage kids are, for the most part, the leaders of their families. While their parents are catching up to their language skills and just acclimation and comfort in the home country, teenagers, they're starting high school almost as soon as they get here. They're picking up English just like their little siblings. And in a lot of ways, they're navigating life for their parents and the rest of their family. Witnessing all the impact that Mary's List has had on the Trod family, I wanted to know just how and why Mary's List got started and what other types of programs they offer for resettling families. Mary's List got started in July 2016. Um, a friend of mine called me and said that she had met a family from Syria who had recently moved to Los Angeles. Um, it just so happened that they had a baby who was the same age as my youngest, so she thought to call me. Um, meeting that family, uh, visiting them in their home. Um, I could see that they had a lot of needs that were not met by the organizations that were sponsoring them. Um, and that was the beginning of a domino effect that led to, to Mary's List. The program that we are most well known for is our wish list program. And it's a lot like a baby registry or a wedding registry, but for resettling families. Um, one of the things that we found was a big struggle for families who are starting out over in America as refugees is that they were struggling to have their basic needs met. Um, and that includes supplies. What our wish lists provide is one direct avenue for people to really easy really easily send a gift to a resettling neighbor. Our families are able to have their first homes in America filled by people who want to welcome them. And they know that every time they open their door to a mountain of boxes, that each box represents a family, a person, a stranger who they'll likely never meet, um, who sent them a gift because they want to welcome them. Families are coming through our federal refugee resettlement program. Um, that is managed and funded by the federal government. The State Department Office of Refugee Resettlement is overseeing nine licensed resettlement agencies who are basically the welcome wagon for, or they were the welcome wagon before we came along for resettling refugees. Just like the public school system that's funded based on the number of students that attend class, the refugee resettlement system is funded based on the number of families that come through. Between the time of applying for resettlement and getting approved, there are many, many years that pass and maybe dozens or, or more meetings. Um, I've heard stories of people, families having to leave their jobs so they could go to a, a vetting meeting 
18 hours away from where they lived. The reality is those years of waiting for resettlement, those are not resettlement years. They're not resettling. Often they don't have rights. They don't have access to things like healthcare and school. Coming to America is for most of the families that we serve, the first chance that they've had to really start to make choices about their life and really start over. What we see as the biggest shift that we see in the families once they arrive is when they go from the mindset of survival through the process of taking agency over their lives by starting to make choices, they're able to transform really from somebody in survival mode to somebody who's actually looking out their window and wondering if their neighbors need help. But transitioning from survival mode and adapting to a different culture is tough. I asked Layla and Hamza about what some of the challenges have been. Maybe the culture is different. What do you mean by that? Like some some of them are really mean to me because I'm, I'm wearing hijab. It's hard because they, they bother me a lot in school. But yeah, it's okay. Like that's the hardest thing. I mean, most of the people they don't understand, like they think that just Muslims are terrorists. Mm-hmm. They don't know like the truth. I mean, yeah, a lot of people, most like in every country there's terrorists and bad people, but that doesn't mean all the Muslims are terrorists. There's one time someone called me a terrorist. Um, I went to the office, told them, and then they called his family and he got sus- suspended. Hey guys, suspended. Yeah. And then he stopped, to do it. but they keep doing it right now. I ignore them. Most of the time, like Allahu Akbar, they say that they make fun of my religion. They stopped saying terrorists right now, but they make fun of my religion. And there was thing that I miss my family, my mm-hmm. friends. We feel alone sometimes. Maybe she can go back. For me, like, it's like almost the same. Like for the future, like the best thing is to like to learn a lot of new things, uh, new culture, see new people, meet new people. And the worst is like, like growing up without like our family, our friends, mm, like this. Jamal and Abir spoke of the difficulties they've endured and how they've been coping with the changes, what it was like leaving their family, friends, and lifestyle in Syria behind and having to adjust to a new way of living. She was like, it's hard to make friends because she doesn't speak English too, so it was like, it's really hard. She is going to college now taking ESL classes. So yeah, she, she best level one, she's doing level two. That's good, that's great. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love she, he's proud of it. He doesn't say anything wrong, so he 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 won't be afraid. He was like, even if I heard anything, I'll just smile at him and just walk away. No problem. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very. And if he want to fight, okay, that's okay. no problem. <laughs> that would be bad for him. But <laughs> I was like, I don't like problems. I'll just stay away from them. Just. Laugh and walk away. There are a lot of myths and misconceptions about refugee resettlement in the United States. Contrary to popular belief, refugees welcome to the United States come from all over the world and represent a diversity of religions. 
There also seems to be confusion and debate over the use of the terms refugee and asylum seeker. People seeking status as refugees go through a different process than those who are seeking asylum. I asked Miri about some of the specifics. People, a lot of people don't understand that there's no such thing as an illegal refugee and anyone that's here as a refugee is an example of someone who followed the law and came through the system. In America, to be a refugee, that means that you have to come through our federal refugee resettlement program and you have to come through one of those nine licensed resettlement agencies. To get refugee status, you have to go to a UNHCR refugee camp and they give you status. Um, once you get your refugee status, you can either stay in the camp or you can go elsewhere and, and live while you wait and, and get vetted. Asylees, on the other hand, are people who have fled, are presenting themselves inside the country and saying that it's not safe for them to return home. And so one is an example of somebody who's presently here in the country and the other is an example of somebody who's in a third is in a third party not their home country typically and not here and they're applying through the system and often these two these things are confused um, the rights are different for refugees and asylees um, the legal status is different for refugees and asylees it is legal to present yourself for asylum in america people coming through the refugee resettlement system are examples of people who are following the law refugees are a complete cross-section of society there's no type of person who is a refugee the thing that all of these people have in common is that it's not safe for them to go home and they need to come here so they can live a normal life the civil war in Syria has been one of the largest drivers of the global refugee crisis, which has left 68.5 million people displaced. The Trod family is just one of the countless families all over the world who have had to leave their homes to survive. But unlike many of those families, after years of wishing and waiting, they were able to find hope and peace in America. <laughs> So he's saying we are in a, the people in the Middle East have like kind of that look to the, the U.S. like as an enemy. But when actually we came and left here and we, we look at the people as people are different than the government. People are lovely and beautiful. So, yeah. It was like in my experience, most people help me here are the American people. Not Arab people. Statistics from the IRC show that the vast majority of newly resettled refugees find jobs within 180 days of arrival. They then spend money that helps economies, and as you saw in this video, send their kids to school with the hope that they become productive and successful members of society. The reality is, refugees have been coming to the U.S. for hundreds of years, and their cultures, values, and individual contributions have profoundly shaped the nation. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright was, at one point, a refugee from Prague. Pulitzer Prize-winning photojournalist Dith Pran was a Cambodian refugee who survived the Khmer Rouge. Actress Mila Kunis came to the U.S. on a religious refugee visa from Ukraine. Grammy award-winning singer-songwriter Gloria Stefan and her family were refugees who fled Cuba when Fidel Castro rose to power. And who can forget Albert Einstein, a refugee from Germany who fled the Nazi regime and found success as a professor at Princeton in the 1930s. Apart from their contributions to our society, all these people have something else in common. They were all given the chance to start over and opportunities to succeed. I mean, everybody is different and we see somebody that somebody's different, you don't have to assume things about him by the way he looks or he dress or he talks or whatever. At the end, we all human, we, all, we have feelings and at the end, the life is short and you know, it, it doesn't, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to do all that, It'd just be nice.
I mean, I think, and one more thing, just, I mean, don't feel bad for refugees, though, if you see, or for immigrants, just believe in them. That's what it would take. You believe in them, they will do good things. But just don't, be, don't feel bad for them. That's all I can say. The Trot family's journey is both unique and alarmingly common. And with the ongoing refugee crisis, and after over eight years of civil war in Syria, it's no question that we're going to see more and more stories like theirs getting lost in today's 24-7 news cycle. As of this month, the United States has admitted a total of 9,305 refugees, a quantity well below the average needed to meet the 30,000 ceiling the current administration set last fall. The refugee resettlement system in the United States is designed to keep people alive, and it does that pretty well. Funding through the State Department's Reception and Placement Program guarantees that during the first 90 days after their arrival, refugees are provided food, housing, clothing, employment services, follow-up medical care, and other necessary services. And the sponsoring agency that they came through is responsible for placing them with one of its affiliated offices, and for providing these initial services, but that is just the bare minimum. Once those initial 90 days are over, there are still so many things recent arrivals need. And the resettlement process doesn't end with the agency that's helping or the caseworker. The community plays an equally important role. Hearing Jamal and Abir talk about what it's been like living in the United States and how they've been helped by so many people here shows us the impact one person can have when they choose to help someone in need. And I mean, it is really crazy to think just how someone can just drop everything, the life that they had, that they created, their career, their home, and, and just leave. And then just be expected to pick up where they left off. On top of that, having to find work to pay the bills, put food on the table, all while not knowing the language or the system. And I mention all of this along with, you know, it's, it's not easy sharing your story and talking about everything that you've been through, let alone opening your door to strangers, because ultimately that's what we were. And so we are really grateful to the Trad family for talking to us. This story has also inspired us to help other families, so we decided to donate the proceeds from this video to Mary's List to support their work. Like Maria said before, they have helped over 320 families since 2016 and their needs are still growing. And actually with that said, if you'd like to help the families like the one featured in this video, we'll leave a link in the description down below for you. There you'll find individual family profiles that link to an Amazon wish list with things like socks, diapers, paper towels, blankets, laundry detergent, deodorant, and other everyday essentials. So yeah, that's where we're gonna end this one. And of course, as we always try to pass the question off to you, what are your thoughts around this story in general? Also, do you have personal experiences with seeking refugee status? Do you know anyone who's had to leave their home due to war, violence, religious persecution? And of course, there's the all-encompassing question of, you know, in general, you know, what are your thoughts thoughts around refugees and the resettlement process in general. Let us know what you're thinking in those comments down below. Also, while you're at it, if you like us taking these different looks, these deep dives, let us know. Hit that like button. Also, if you're new here, you want more, we have more to give. Be sure to subscribe. Also, ring that bell to turn on notifications. With that said, of course, as always, I love your faces. I hope you have a fantastic day, and I'll see you later today right here on this channel with the brand new Philip DeFranco Show.